Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, Undying Light listeners. This is your host, Pastor Alex, and we are getting close to the end of the Lord's Supper. And so I'm thinking this episode and then one more, and we will be done with the series on the sacraments. I might do an episode or two on confession and absolution, just as some Lutherans and I I would consider myself to see that as kind of a, a sacrament as well. Uh, I think that'll be one that I will certainly um, take on and just as kind of an informational uh, perspective, if you would, because there are some uncertainties, especially from the Reformed camps. Why do Lutherans do this? How do we hold it so high? Those types of things. So that might come down the chute. Maybe that might round out our September episodes, because if I look at my calendar, uh, September 6th is the last episode that I have geared um, according to what I've already recorded. So this episode will come the week after that, which would be the second week in September, and then we have two more weeks before we're done. And I'm, so I'm kind of going back and forth. Do I want to just finish off the sacrament series and, and push myself through September or end it like at you know the third Wednesday, uh, third Tuesday in the month, and then um, start a new segment the last week. I could very well do that. I haven't really decided yet. I don't know what I'm going to do. It's just the way I work. So we are uh, going to wrap the Lord's Supper today, and we are going to um, dig into uh, the four major views on this episode. So we're going to actually look at the Roman Catholic view a little bit closer in depth. We're going to look at the Orthodox view. Uh, we're going to look at the Lutheran view, and then the Reformed and Presbyterian, and then there is an other group uh, that we'll take a quick gander at. Um, and as we've talked through uh, much on these episodes, it is uh, Zwingli versus Luther, and we'll we'll kind of dig into some of that. So I don't know how long I'll be able to make this episode, but because uh, I don't have a ton of material in terms of the other views. 
but we'll see what we can do uh, and make this uh, at least worth your time listening. Uh, as we continue to move through this series, there's a big emphasis on the difference between sacraments and ordinances. And now I've made a, a number of mentions uh, to Luther writing about how these are both an ordinance and a sacrament because they are commanded by God for us to partake in. That's really the basic definition of an ordinance. The sacrament part comes in to play when we see that there's a promise that is wrapped in this ordinance and that makes it a sacrament. And so then we can take that and, uh, and, and give that to the person in the pew, right? So if I'm a, and I am a pastor, so, uh, when I do communion and I'm doing the Lord's supper, and I bless the bread and wine, and then I go and individually hand each person in my congregation the bread, and I tell them, this is the body of Christ given for you. There's a promise in that, and that promise, as we had stated on the previous episodes, is uh, the forgiveness of sin. And so there's the major views aren't necessarily focused around what the Lord's Supper does, but how it works. And this is kind of interesting because when we start to examine it, uh, there's not there there are some some differences uh, when it comes to the actual like uh, development or the ap- application of the Lord's Supper, but the most of the uh, the battle was is going to come in the fact of where does Christ come into play, and so we'll see very distinct views on how each uh, group will view uh, the role of Christ in the Lord's Supper. And interestingly enough, uh, with baptism, it's kind of the opposite. And baptism, uh, the argument and the fight is over what baptism actually does. What does it convey? And so uh, most Christians, and, and I would think any Christian, would argue that baptism is an essential element to the Christian faith. All Christians should be baptized. We understand, though, that if somebody comes to faith and they don't have the opportunity to get baptized before their death and, they're, and they go to meet their maker, yes, they will still have salvation as long as they uh, professed the name of Christ. Because as Mark closes out his gospel, he gives us this little illustration. uh, Those who believe and are baptized will be saved. Those who do not believe will be condemned. And so the baptism piece comes into big play often, but we also understand that it is not the only means by which God saves or It is not the only means by which God determines one's salvation. And I say that because there's often a lot of battles that go against baptism to, because we want to, we want to hold the faith alone, right? And saying that God uses a means to save a person does not go against faith alone. We still are saved by faith alone in the fact that God has come to us through our baptism or he's come to us through the Lord's Supper or he came to us through a preacher. And, and I think sometimes we get so caught up in the, you know, and, and maybe this uh, analytical way of establishing a right order of salvation, especially, and I noticed this in the reform camp when I was there, uh, everything had to be very meticulous. Everything was analytical. Everything was step by step. This is what happens, A, B, C, D. And in reality, some of that's true and some of it's not really applicable to the Christian faith. And because we see that God uses all sorts of means to save people. And he sent Christ to us, and in, through Christ we have salvation. And Christ uses 
all sorts of means in his ministry. He uses his words. He uses his cloak without touching people to heal them. He uses mud to cure the blind man, but more importantly, to uh, forgive him of his sins. He uses all sorts of things, the bread, the wine. I mean, it's just, it's really fascinating how God uses different things to save people. And so when we get to this context and understanding the differences between uh, the sacraments and ordinances, we as Lutherans view these sacraments very high because we see that there's this promise wrapped up in this given to the individual, whether it's in baptism or in the Lord's Supper. So to wrap that little train of thought up, if we look at baptism, the argument always comes in what baptism does and conveys. Does it save people? Does it promise salvation? Does it promise forgiveness of sins? That's the, the big argument. The second argument in baptism is that it's, it's you doing the work. It's you being obedient. But in reality, we see that scripture tells us that otherwise it is God doing the work to us. And then in the Lord's Supper, though, the argument is kind of flipped backwards to that. And it's the focus on what is Christ doing in the sacrament versus what does the sacrament convey? Because we all have the taxes very bluntly given in Matthew 26. I, I go to that as my kind of um, platform because I recite it every time we do uh, the Lord's Supper in our church because it gives us the best you know view of what Christ was saying in that dinner time. And in Matthew 26 verses 26 through 29, we have the words of institution. And they're very basic, they're very blunt, and they're straight to the point, this is what this does, right? So when we get to the understanding of the Lord's Supper, we see uh, that there is this fundamental understanding of what is going on in it. But the discussion amongst the churches is where is Christ and is he present or is it a memorial or is he spiritually present, any like that. And so here's the interesting thing is like each of those has some sort of theological weight that it would carry, whether Christ is this, that, or the other in the sacrament. It pays us to understand where he resides and how each of these views uh, can convey certain theological premises. So as we continue, we're going to get into uh, the Roman Catholic view to begin with, uh, and we're going to look at what they call, they say this, uh, most often you'll hear it called the Eucharist, uh, which is Greek for Thanksgiving. Uh, The Eucharist is a term that sometimes you'll hear in the Lutheran circles, uh, sometimes maybe uh, Anglican, but more often you'll hear it only in the Roman Catholic circles. Lutherans kind of convey back and forth. We, we, we call it the Eucharist, but not so much. Uh, I prefer the Lord's Supper or communion. And even communion is kind of one of those things that it's falling to the side. Uh, Luther addresses it as the sacrament of the altar. And so uh, that, to me, is another means by which Lutherans would convey uh, this particular um, sacrament. So as we dig into the Roman Catholic view, what we find is one that has been really riddled uh, with some, in my opinion, some confusion uh, and some kind of different directions that it has taken place, but mostly um, from its earliest understanding, uh, we go all the way back to um, the early church and its construct to how uh, the Lord's Supper would be applied. And we looked at a lot of those quotes and on a, on a previous episode, so go back and listen to those if you're curious on how the early church constructed this. But 
for the Roman Catholic Church, you know, that with the Pope being instituted as a single Pope uh, around the year 500 and then the establishment of the Roman Catholic Church from there on uh, and the various councils that they took on over the next uh, thousand years or so before the Reformation of 1500, uh, they, they talked and convened on this aspect. But they're, they have a very interesting view, and let's dig into that. Uh, so this is a, uh, a sacrament, of course, and like all sacraments, it conveys grace to all who receive it worth, worthily. Uh, the sacrament also makes present Christ's sacrifice on the cross in an unbloody manner, and for that reason it is also known as the holy sacrifice of the Mass, though, it, though uh, through it forgiveness of sin may be obtained. In and on consecration, the bread and wine change completely into the actual body and blood of Christ. This change is known as transubstantiation, as Christ's presence in the elements is called the real presence. And here's what the Council of Trent states in, uh, that was held between 1545 and 1563. Remember, the Council of Trent was a response to the Lutheran uh, Reformation and the other Reformations that were sparking during that time. This is what they say. By the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of our uh, of Christ our Lord and the whole substance of wine into the substance of his blood. This change, the Holy Catholic Church has fittedly and properly called transubstantiation. So we have a few things uh, with the Roman Catholic view that uh, can be troublesome, right? The first one is the representing of the sacrifice of Christ to the altar, and they call this the holy sacrifice of the Mass. This is a major problem because we see that Christ died one time in Scripture and that his death resulted in the resurrection, his death results in the forgiveness of sins, and he only dies one time. He doesn't have to go through multiple sacrifices in order for the people to be forgiven. And so there's a major problem with the view uh, where they are assuming or presenting the Eucharist in the fashion of Christ being re-sacrificed in an unbloody manner. Theologically, there's a lot of problems with that view. And it would essentially say that the death of Christ on the cross that the gospel accounts record and that every New Testament writer points back to wasn't sufficient enough and therefore must be done over and over and over again every Sunday uh, through the history of the church until Christ returns. That's what it's stating. And that is, uh, in, in my opinion, it's blunt heresy. Uh, obviously, we know that the Roman Catholics have a lot of wacky theology and a lot of terrible doctrinal pieces. And so um, this is a big, big problem, in my opinion. And I would venture to say that the Lutherans and any Protestant would view this and agree with me. This is problematic. And it is it is really difficult to even look at the next piece of the Roman Catholic view, because in that we have the transubstantiation perspective. This is where upon uh, consecration, so uh, the priest comes up and he blesses the bread and wine. And upon that uh, blessing, the reading of the words of institution, they believe that the bread and wine change into uh, the body and blood of Christ. And that, again, is not indicated 
anywhere in scripture. Jesus doesn't give us this, uh, the words of institution in Matthew 26, and then state, when you say this, my body or this bread will turn into my body. He doesn't even say that. He doesn't say this bread will turn into my body. This wine will turn into my blood. No, he just states bluntly, this is my body. This is my blood. And so very problematic with their view and understanding. And uh, it can really lead to a lot of discrepancies, a lot of theological issues. um, And in my opinion, some heresy that could arise out of this view as well. So that is the Roman Catholic view. Again, there's probably some more depth if we wanted to go and actually read the Council of Trent. We would see so many problems where especially they call any person who says that they are saved by faith alone to be anathematized, uh, which would be accursed, which would be kicked out of the church. Uh, you could be excommunicated. They are, they are a heretic if they state that uh, the Christian is saved by faith alone. And so there's a massive line drawn in the sand uh, from the Roman Catholic Church with the Council of Trent versus the Protestant movement and any Christian who comes outside of that uh, movement. And it especially even puts the, the line against the Orthodox people and, and, and anybody except a Roman Catholic. And so it really is problematic with the Council of Trent uh, because I think up until that point, we didn't have quite as, we, we had some heresies that were floating around in the Roman Catholic Church. We had some terrible theology. We had some bad popes. Um, but the Council of Trent really put the seal of the deal on the deal of, of just being blatantly uh, heretics. So uh, the next view is very short, uh, Orthodox. So this is the Eastern Church. Um, this would be uh, viewed in, in this construct um, that the Eucharist, again, they'll use that term, uh, is accepted as a sacrament, though it uses the term mystery instead of sacrament. It also accepts the doctrines of the real presence and the sacrificial nature of the Eucharist. However, it does not make any attempt to explain how the change occurs, uh, preferring to regard it as divine uh, mystery. The Eucharist service is commonly known as divine liturgy. And so there's some commonality actually between the Orthodox view and the Lutheran view. Uh, And and really the only piece that the Roman Catholic Church that... uh, kind of gets right and it's only a fragment of a piece between the between what Lutherans believe and what the Orthodox believe is the real presence and the Roman Catholics arrive at the real presence by changing scripture in order for their view to fit the Orthodox don't bother to even try to describe it they just say it's a mystery and that's kind of how Lutherans do it too because Luther says well this is what the text states there's nothing explicitly written anywhere else that would make me go, huh, okay, that makes sense now, or this explains this passage. No, Luther says this is really the only passage that we go to, and it it echoes the same thing in Mark and uh, Luke as well, and we see how Paul illustrates this, and we talked about those verses in previous episodes, but the very fundamental piece that Luther drives forward is this is what the text states, so we, we leave it to mystery, because we don't, we can't explain it. There's no philosophical means, no logical explanation. We just simply say, this is what it is. And that's what the Orthodox are doing here. They're saying, it's a mystery. And in, I don't like the fact that they use mystery instead of sacrament. And maybe not all Orthodox use it. But I, I think 
by and large, they're, they're probably going to come more closely in line uh, with the Lutheran view. So we have on now to the Lutherans, uh, who obviously this is where I fall into, and, and I don't agree with how sometimes uh, the, the terminology is used to label the Lutheran view of the, of the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of the altar. And we'll talk about that as we uh, dig into this. So in the Lutheran view, there's a sacramental union of the bread and wine with the body of Christ. In other words, Christ's body and blood are present in, with, and under the forms of bread and wine. This is sometimes, sometimes known as consubstantiation. Now here's the interesting kicker. Luther flat out rejected this term as well as rejecting transubstantiation. Because what it's trying to do is it's trying to provide a term to logically confine a definition to the Lord's Supper. And Luther did not like that. In fact, when uh, Luther was approached uh, on, on this particular topic, he really just says that these terms put too much of a confinement to the mystery that we entail. And it tries to explain it via man's logic when when the scripture doesn't give us any sort of explanation to it and so luther rejects this term it's not just that he didn't use it he flat out rejected this term and if you're a confessional lutheran which i am they would reject this term also and and i would hope that any person who has a good understanding of the scripture would in fact reject those terms because as I had mentioned, they put a confinement and they try to isolate uh, the sacrament without giving any sort of explanation. They just say, oh, this is what it is. And with transubstantiation is the term in the Roman Catholic view. It makes sense because it's transitioning into something. In, in the Roman Catholic view, it's changing into the body and blood. Lutherans, we look at this and we, we say the words of institution, and then when we give the, the bread and wine to people, we uh, are instructed to do so under the premise that Christ is in, with, and under the bread and wine. Now, here's the mystery, and this is where Lutherans will come fairly close to the orthodox view um, of the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's mystery in how Christ comes in, with, and under the bread and wine. And so here's what here's kind of the the basic construct to the Lutheran uh, sacrament of the altar. So I have people who prepare uh, the little. I have a, I have one person who makes all the bread. We have unleavened bread that we make in the church, and then they she goes through and cuts them into little cubes, and we take some cubes out of the freezer every uh, Sunday. We celebrate the divine liturgy because we would call it divine liturgy as well as the. Uh, the Orthodox Church does. We take it out of the freezer, let them soften. We pour all the wine in the little cups around our, you know, silver ch um, cup holder. I don't know if I call it a chalice or not, but you know, it's like a silver tray and it's got little individual shot glass spots. So we pour the wine in those. We cover them with white cloth. They sit up on the altar through the whole service. And then when I go to prepare the words of institution, we have a, we have a great Thanksgiving that we we sing praise to God. And then we, I uncover the bread and wine. I take the lid off the wine. I take the cover, the sheet off the bread. And I then will read the words of institution. And I will read and recite Matthew 26 on the night in which our Lord was betrayed. Our Lord, 
On the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to all, saying, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in the remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, and then I'll hold up the wine in front of the congregation. Actually, what I'll do is I'll face the altar uh, with my back to it and then the cup over my head. And I say, uh, likewise, and then um, after supper, he takes the cup, blesses it, and gave thanks, and gives it to all to drink, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my uh, New Testament in my blood given for you uh, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we, we recite that every time we go and administer the sacrament. And here's the interesting thing. When I go and do private visits with my congregation and I bring them the sacrament, if they can't come to me to the church and receive it there, I will bring it to their house and they will then be able to partake in the Lord's Supper by me blessing the one little cube and the one little cup and handing it to them. And so as I'm blessing or giving the words of institution to, you know, to uh, the congregation and to the bread and wine, somewhere in that Christ is now, now is present in, with, and under somewhere in the, you know, in the conversation of me working that to the turning and uh, addressing the congregation for them to come up, Christ becomes in, with, and present uh, in the bread and wine. And so, it's a mystery because you can't explain it. And Luther rejects the term because we don't want to just simply be care. You know, we don't want to be careless with it, but we also don't want to be, you know, too bold in our proclamation. We just simply assert what the Orthodox do and just say how this happens. How is there a real presence in the, the bread and wine? Uh, it's a mystery. And, and I, and we leave it at that. And, and Protestants, interestingly enough, Protestants don't like the fact that Lutherans uh, will leave some things to mystery, because here's the thing. When Jesus says in Matthew 26, that this is my body given for you. And then he says, this is my blood shed for you. He doesn't give us any explanation of how this is his body or how the wine is his blood. He doesn't tell us that. And so there's no means by which the Lutheran can come back and logically or philosophically explain this because Luther just doesn't give it to, or Jesus doesn't give it to us. So Luther looked at that text and says, this is what it is. This is where the dividing factor becomes Lutherans and the rest of Protestant because the Protestants don't like the fact that we address it as mystery. They want to logically uh, or philosophically explain the sacrament because they have to have an answer for everything. And, and they don't like the fact that there are some things in Scripture that are just flat out a mystery. We don't know how things work sometimes. And in, and I made this comment in my Bible study uh, the last the last week maybe um, that we had it. I said I, I find as Christians we we don't know as uh, as much as we think we do about Scripture. We don't know as much as we think we do. And and this would be one of those. We think we know but we don't truly know the, all of the, the elements and the mysteries. We don't know how God, uh, you know, decided to do what he did and how it all worked that the Holy spirit came and impregnated Mary with Christ and Christ came and was born of the Virgin lived and reigned or lived and died and was resurrected. And then now he's omnipresent and he's at the altar every time the, sacrament of the altar is presented to the church. He's omnipresent there. Meanwhile, 
He's also at the right hand of God, which is a uh, can be viewed as a an authoritative position because in Matthew 28, we are told that all authority and all power have been given to him. And so the right hand of God is a figurative uh, perspective of power being given to Christ. And so we know that he is in heaven with those who have died. He is present in the elements of the uh, Lord's Supper. And then he's also present in the elements of the uh, baptism. Just as much as the Holy Spirit is, it's it's really another divine mystery in how the triune Godhead works. They have three distinct roles, three distinct um, jobs or duties that have that have and are being carried out, but they are all in unison and all in agreement, and no contradictions can be found. So uh, it's a, a whole lot of uh, theology that we can get into, and we can sit here and talk until the cows come home, but uh, I want to... Uh, finish up this view. So Luther explains his view by using the analogy of a hot or of an iron rod placed in the fire. Both are united in the red hot iron, yet both are very distinct between the iron and the fire. Lutherans reject the view of the Eucharist as making present Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We've talked about that in uh, the book of Concord as we worked through that um, and more importantly, as I'd said earlier on the show, Lutherans flat out reject the um, re-sacrificing of Christ. So the Luther, or, so that's the Lutheran view. Uh, the Reformed or Presbyterian is this. Uh, they their view derives more from John Calvin. Uh, Christ is not present literally in the elements, but he is spiritually present. I did hold to this for a short period of time because I was a Reformed Calvinistic tulip fire preaching guy and uh, I have since left that camp and I am more comfortable in the Lutheran view and and I think the real presence as it is pretty much agreed upon by the early church and church through the history as Christ being present in with and under the bread and wine uh, makes much more sense to me than the view of Calvin uh, that Calvin presents and what Zwingli presents. So here's kind of the thing to really get yourself into the mental state of Luther had the debate with Zwingli. We talked about that week one on the, on the Lord's supper. Luther's debate with Zwingli uh, essentially created two major divisions within the view of the Lord's supper. Uh, Zwingli went to the extent to say that Christ is not present. It is a representation. It is, it is, there is no spiritual, there is no physical presence, nothing. It is just basically a remembrance. It is you know, the duty of the Christian to do. It's a command. Nothing happens, though. It is just this work of action that we take on. Calvin comes in and says, well, maybe there's a little bit of a middle ground we can find. And this is kind of where Calvin uh, does on a lot of things. He tries to go between the uh, extremes of Zwingli and Luther and finds some sort of middle ground. But in this, uh, Christ is not present literally in the elements, but he is spiritually present. Those who receive the elements with faith can receive the actual body and blood of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, which works through sacrament. This is also known as receptionism. Uh, Calvin explains this in the Institutes. He says, the rule which pious ought 
always to observe is whenever they see symbols symbols instituted by the Lord to think uh, and free and feel surely persuaded that the truth of the thing is uh, signified is also present. Why does the why does the Lord put the symbol of His body into your hands, but just to uh, just to assure you that you truly partake in Him? If this is true, let us feel as much assured that the visible sign is given us in seal of an indivisible indivis, invisible gift, as that the body itself is given to us. So here's my beef with with Calvin on the Institutes here, and again. Uh, I'm not trying to discredit Calvin. I think he was a he was a really brilliant theologian, but he was trained in the law um, from a young age, whereas Luther was trained as a monk. And so Calvin does tend to have some very legalistic tendencies. So if you actually go and read the uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, you'll find some of that, uh, a lot of that being echoed. But anyways, my beef with Calvin on this is that he he really stands. St- firmly on a symbol. He says Christ is present, but he's spiritually present and he's using the bread and wine as a symbol of his body and blood. It is not really the body and blood of Christ. And so he, he basically what he's doing is he's changing the text from Matthew 26. And he's saying that Jesus didn't really mean what he was saying. In fact, he probably meant this. And so we're going to change the text. And I, that's where I, I get into some, some disagreements with that. The last group um, is kind of a fringe, if you would, um, but this can be found in the Methodist churches and the Anglican churches. Uh, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, deny any physical and spiritual presence of Christ in the bread and wine. Rather, the Lord's Supper is merely a remembrance of the suffering Christ did on the cross and a remember of his power to overcome sin and death. This view derives from the teachings of Zwingli, imagine that, as also commonly known as memorialism. So that is the four major views, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking on uh, Zwingli. You can go back and listen to the first episode if you want to hear more of that discussion between him and Luther. But in that framework, uh, again, what we see is a changing of the text in the gospel accounts and that it's trying to um, explain something that's just unexplainable. So that's the four major views. And again, we can go so much more in depth. These are just very basic understandings, but it helps us to begin our journey. If you are serious about looking at the sacraments at a more in-depth study, I would encourage you to look at all of four of these major views and dig into their history and dig into the literature behind them for you to come to your conclusion. So uh, look at the Council of Trent for the Roman Catholic view. Look at the church history. uh, Look at quotes from the uh, church fathers. Dig into the Orthodox view. Look at the Lutherans and look at the uh, Reformed and Presbyterian or the Calvinist groups. And uh, I'd say just flat out a ignore Zwingli and his view because nobody really agrees with it except some fringes, if you would. And I'd even venture to say that more Methodists nowadays probably don't agree with that particular view. They'll fall more into the Calvin uh, agreement. So a little bit over the mark. I didn't think I'd quite get here. So thanks for tuning in. Uh, That wraps this show. We'll do one more Q&A episode to just answer any final questions that you may have or any questions that you just may have in general Uh, surrounding this particular topic. Uh, 
and uh, then we'll move on. So have a great week, guys. God bless. We'll be back Friday with another new episode on a book in the Old Testament as we are working through the Minor Prophets. And we will see you guys later. God bless. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed. And it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.